0: Alright, so do we want to just take it from the top and see how we go?
1: Yeah. Alright. <coughs> Hold on. Okay.
0: We can do this all day. Episode three. Take one. Hi, this is Mark.
1: And this is Emily. And,
0: and we, we can, can do this. this.
1: Nope, no, not going to work.
0: <laughs> we can't do this we all day. We can't apparently. do this all day. Hi, this is Mark.
1: And this is Emily. And And we we can can do this this all day. day.
0: A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And now that the technical issues we had for the past 20 minutes seem to have subsided. Good evening, Emily. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Doing pretty good, thanks. It's another lovely Friday evening here in Studio M.
1: And it's a sauna in Studio E.
0: It's never right, is it? Nope. So, thank you for joining us, everybody. Tonight, we finally, after three episodes, get to go back to where it all began. We are reviewing the original. Iron Man tonight. Iron Man opened on May 2nd, 2008 in the US. It stars, of course, Robert Downey Jr., Terence Howard, Jeff Bridges, Sean Tube, Gwyneth Paltrow, Farhan Tahir, and Clark Gregg. Screenplay by Mark Fergus, Hark Osby, Art Markham, and Matt Holloway. This film is directed by Jon Favreau, who up until this point had only directed three feature films, all of which had relatively modest budgets. Although, Elf was clearly a breakaway hit. Wait, what? He did Elf? He directed Elf. I
1: love Elf. That is my family's favorite movie.
0: It's the holiday movie of choice for a lot of people now in the last 20 years. It's so
1: good. I had no idea. Wow, that like blew my mind. Okay.
0: In terms of his directing stuff, that was what he'd been best known for although he was still at that time somewhat more well known as a TV and film actor, most notably for his role in the 1996 film Swingers with Vince Vaughn. This movie, Iron Man, clearly his biggest budget film to date, was shot on a budget of $140 million, and at the box office it ended up grossing $585.3 million. So here, the MCU, their first film, was clearly a very big hit. This was the hit of the summer of 2008 clearly and it boded well obviously for the whole franchise to come. So we thought we'd just go through and talk about the film.
1: And of course as always before you get started on describing the film where would you rank this? So now we've ranked two movies so far so where would you put this one?
0: You know why don't you go first this time where would you rank it? So you've always asked me Let me ask you this time, why don't you tell me where you would rank Iron Man?
1: I don't remember my top five very clearly from when we did our intro episode. I know I put this one in my top five, and it definitely still is. So it was probably two or three, I'm guessing. That feels like a safe bet. It's this movie and maybe two other movies that I could nearly verbatim quote to anybody if they asked. Like, I could reenact the entire movie. That's how many times I've seen it.
0: You said in the show notes you'd actually seen this more times than Winter Soldier. Is that true?
1: Probably. I think also especially because this movie's been out longer. That's true. So that that helps. But yeah, this is a very easy go-to if I want to watch a superhero movie. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I don't want to be sad about Bucky. I'll watch this
0: one. <laughs> when it first came out and for the first few years after it came out when the MCU was still relatively young it was a favorite film of mine. I really enjoyed it. But as the MCU has grown over the years and you know we've got like 25, 26 however many films out now something is eventually going to have to move closer to the bottom. And honestly Iron Man for me is one of those films. As much as I like it there are just too many other things in the MCU that I like more. So right now Iron Man is probably somewhere I don't know between 15 and 20 I would guess as much as I love RDJ there's something about the Iron Man films they're just not going to be as high up in my rankings for me it's it's not that they're bad movies especially the first one the first one is phenomenal but it's just I don't know maybe because it's been around longer it's just something that you know maybe becomes in my mind a little diluted so at the moment it's not terribly high on the list but I like to think that's just because there's so many offerings in the MCU that I just happen to think are better on any given day I would still watch my least favorite MCU film over a lot of other stuff
1: I'll allow it. I would not watch my least favorite MCU movie over any other movie. Well, Definitely not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe one of these days we're in one of those moods, we'll do a bottom five list where we feel like being curmudgeonly. I can do Uh, that. Although although I think that information is just going to come out naturally anyway, and it may end up coming out in just a few more weeks, for all I know. Um, Yeah,
1: you'll notice when the episode is like 30 minutes long. (laughs) That's how you'll know if it's a least favorite movie.
0: So, Iron Man. So I figured we'd just go through the story, talk about what we liked, disliked, and our general observations. You said that you've seen this movie, you think, more than Winter Soldier?
1: Yeah, definitely. Is that going to be the episode? Is it will just be me reenacting an audio reenactment of the movie? (laughs) Just a very serious like radio radio drama. Radio drama.
0: Well I would totally love that. On Iron Man. We should do that there. Or oh, the supplemental episode of one of these days. <laughs> Iron Man, the audio drama. Okay. I pulled out a quote One of my favorite quotes from the movie, they say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. It's just sort of quintessential pre-capture Tony Stark. Just the weapons dealer. All he cares about is the money. And he's pretty much just a war profiteer. And I just wanted to pull that quote out. The movie, of course, revolves around Tony Stark. Billionaire Playboy weapons tycoon who, after a weapons demonstration in Afghanistan, is captured and forced to build that same weapon, the Jericho missile. He's aided by a fellow prisoner, engineer, and physicist. Ho Jensen, Jensen grafts an electromagnet powered by a car battery to Tony's chest to keep shrapnel incurred during the initial attack from entering his heart, and together they construct a rudimentary yet amazingly effective suit of armor that allows Tony to escape his captors, but unfortunately Jensen is killed during that escape, and horrified by the sight of watching U.S. service personnel killed by his own weapons, as well as his own capture and ordeal, and Jensen's parting words, Tony shuts down the Stark Weapons Production Division upon on his return home. This doesn't sit too well within the company, most notably the Stark Industries Board of Directors and Tony's second-in-command, Obadiah Stane.
1: Of course, I know that Obi Obadiah is supposed to be a sort of father-mentor figure for Tony, but Tony's whole, I never got to say goodbye to Dad, and when he said that press conference, when he announces that they're going to shut down the weapons industry. Every time I watch it now, I'm just like, it's because Bucky killed him. <laughs> Which it wasn't Bucky. On your Bucky. birthday, no less. It wasn't Bucky. It wasn't. It
0: wasn't him.
1: It wasn't it him. It wasn't him. But it was. <laughs> so that's sad. And then a little less on the funny side. Throughout this whole movie, sort of struggle- with believing that Tony could have been so innocent as to think the baddies of the world wouldn't get their hands on his weapon somehow. He literally accepts the label merchant of death He's well aware of his legacy, but he doesn't believe that someone else would use his weapons to their own advantage. I think even Obadiah calls him on it at the gala, and he's like, you can't be so innocent as to think that this isn't what we're doing, that we're not killing people. Like, you are the merchant of death. We're warmongers. That's what we do.
0: I don't love innocent is the word I would use, but there's definitely quite a bit of hubris with Tony. He just assumes, hey, I'm Tony Stark. I'm rich. I build weapons, I can do anything I want. I think it's just a power trip, frankly. I think he's deluded at the time enough to think, yeah, I can do whatever I want. They want to try to come after me? Yeah, you know, whatever. Because he's also cavalier enough to think that. He's a very reckless individual. It just doesn't surprise me that he would think, yeah, yeah, they come after me. But that's not even really
1: what he is upset about. What he's upset about is people who aren't him using his weapons. But to think that people wouldn't want to try to unseat him because that's essentially what the Ten Rings wants. They want to mm-hmm. unseat him. But to think that he is untouchable to the point that other people wouldn't be using his weapons against him, it just seems like, for such a smart guy, he should know better.
0: That may be true.
1: I question a lot of Tony Stark's decisions, so this one is no different.
0: Well, that's, like we say, this is a, a redemption story. This is a story of someone changing, and, you know, you have to paint a really good picture of what he was like before. One of the great things about this movie is it does that. You get a really good picture of what Tony is like before his capture. And he's clearly a very arrogant guy and, yeah, you know, quite possibly, he may be very book smart, he may be a great engineer, but he may not know a whole lot about human relationships and power relationships and stuff like that. Maybe that's what it is. I noted when I was watching it, because he is the way he is, because he is such a larger-than-life person, and he just kind of has this very intractable, immovable sort of temperament, when he makes that announcement to stop making weapons, it's like nobody believes him. The even when he does what a lot of people kind of wish he would do, people don't believe him. Even Rhodey, who's like his best friend, doesn't believe that he's actually doing this. They right. think it's some sort of publicity stunt or whatnot. I mean, there are people have gotten so jaded about Tony Stark. Even when he's making this earnest declaration, they don't believe him. I just thought that was really interesting.
1: And especially that Mad Money clip that Pepper's <laughs> watching. I... <laughs> used to watch Mad Money sort of by proxy as a kid all the time. And, you know, this movie came out in 2008. That was 12 years ago. I had probably just grown out of sitting in the hallway watching my parents watch the news at night and seeing Mad Money on the TV. So it was so funny always to see it in the movie. And I actually typed in Mad Money into Google earlier, and I didn't know that it was still airing. Right now? Yeah. It's
0: like MSNBC or CNBC or...
1: Yeah, I think so. I imagine that the man on Mad Money has mellowed out significantly.
0: So after he gets back home and declares that Stark Industries is no longer going to produce weapons, Tony constructs this much more sophisticated version of the armor that he used to escape his captors, and it is the Iron Man armor. He takes it on its first flight, and it's generally a success. Meanwhile, Raza, head of that Ten Rings contingent back in Afghanistan, he finds the remains of the Mark I suit that Tony used to escape and he starts trying to reassemble it at the same time. So you kind of have the dual suit assemblies going on. I think a lot of people would agree the trial and error nature of the development of the suit is a lot of fun to watch. You've got all the slapstick gags with him flying into the walls during the repulsor tests, and that witty repartee with the fire extinguisher. They're quite funny. The one that he he threatens to donate to a city college. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to see that Tony didn't just come up with this thing overnight. He makes a a lot of mistakes along the way. The overpowered propulsors, the lack of de-icing, and I think those are nice nods to his fallibility. But it also demonstrates his commitment to making this thing work, because that's the next step in his redemption. He's clearly working on this thing harder than anything else he's ever worked on before.
1: That's what I like about Tony, and why I was such a fan of Tony up until, you know, in the future we'll talk about my massive disagreement with him on the side he chooses in Civil War. But he really does try so hard to do what he thinks is right. And of course, while I think that he was... A little too childish to assume that his warmongering wasn't a bad thing. I think it just sort of shows his dedication to whatever he sets his mind to something, he's going to do it. So, you know, when he sets his mind to being the merchant of death, he's going to be the merchant of death. And when he sets his mind to being a superhero and to trying to fix things, he is going to do those things. And it's very much like Steve in that regard, and I guess why they have such a contentious relationship. I was
0: actually going to say that exact same thing. It's it's sort of the flip side of Steve Rogers.
1: And we don't ever really get to know Howard in the MCU, but it makes me wonder if a lot of that's because of Howard or in spite of Howard, because it doesn't seem like Howard really has, I guess, a preference for anything either way. You know, he's sort of a flat character in terms of how he would have been
0: regardless of whether or not Howard Stark has that same sort of dedication to his work or whatever it is that he's doing. Personally, I think a lot of Tony's stick I know you don't like that word, but I'm gonna use it anyway, it's his stick itiveness it. and his dedication You'll allow it. You're allowing a lot of things tonight. I know. I, I'm being I'm very sealed.
1: generous today.
0: I think a lot of this is. We all know Tony has clearly has daddy issues, and you know Howard Stark was a very inconsistent father. He was not very present in Tony's life, and that's clearly, in a lot of ways, the crux of a lot of Tony's issues. And I think Tony's always trying to prove himself to his dad. It's the child who just kind of never felt entirely loved by this one particular parent at least, and he's always, even however many years after his death, trying to to seek his approval and gain his approval, and I think that's one of the reasons why Tony is so dogged in his pursuit of a lot of things. I want to make Dad proud of me. I think there's a lot of that at the heart of why Tony is the way that he is. So, Tony's approached by Agent Phil Coulson of S.H.I.E.L.D. In terms of the MCU release order, this is the first appearance of Phil Coulson, played by by Clark Gregg. So he's approached by Phil Coulson who wants to debrief him on his escape from the Ten Rings and then we have the whole scene with Tony approaching Pepper at that formal gala that we I think we referenced earlier in the episode. They dance and they come close to kissing before stopping themselves. <laughs> I'm a big fan of unresolved sexual tension so I absolutely love that scene. The awkwardness between the two of them is so... Um, uh, Awkward. (laughs) I guess there's no other word for it. And yet that's what makes it fun. Tony is clearly uncomfortable engaging in a relationship with a woman in which genuine feelings are involved. And Pepper is clearly uncomfortable with this apparent turn with her boss, especially given his reputation with women and despite the fact that she clearly feels something for him.
1: The two of them are so funny. They do have one of my favorite jokes of like the whole MCU, which is the 12% of a moment joke in the first culminated Avengers movie. I do really enjoy that whole scene at the gala with them. She's like... Oh, this dress? Yeah, you bought it for me for my birthday. And I feel like that joke comes up a lot in movies where it's the assistant and the CEO of a company where the assistant just does things. The assistant just knows that this is what the CEO would do. I love that whole scene. That whole scene's so funny. All their scenes together are great because... As we learn, Pepper is clearly a pretty capable person, but she's so ridiculous in this movie in the best way possible. The, the whole scene with them in the arc reactor where she's like, Operation, I don't know that game. And it's like, Pepper, come on. You're not that out of touch. You do know what Operation is. Put the cord back in. It's okay. Yeah
0: the, yeah, the chemistry between Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert Downey Jr., that's just chemistry. That's just natural. I don't think it's something that has to be worked at. It just it just works. It's great casting and just great acting. Those scenes that they do, when we get into Iron Man 2, Spoiler alert, Iron 2 is not one of my more favorite MCU movies, but No, me either. Banter... Glad
1: we got that settled. <laughs> <laughs> but the
0: banter between Pepper and Tony in that movie, I particularly like. Some of it, I think, might even be better than the banter in this film. Probably because they've kind of gotten to know each other better. But yeah, that relationship it's a quite a cornerstone in the MCU. So we're at this gala, and this reporter, whom Tony had a fling with earlier in the movie, informs him that Stark weapons are being used by the Ten Rings in an attack on Jensen's home village. Tony says that he didn't approve the use of those weapons but obadiah discloses to him that surprise surprise he did so tony uses the iron man armor to fly to the village stop the ten rings from decimating it and of course we get some really great action sequences including that cool fight with a pair of f-22s when he's on his way home i figured you would have something to say about the f-22 fight given your family history in aerospace
1: this again, was the first, outside of X-Men and things like that, the first superhero movie that I'd watch, and I watched it with my dad, who is very into the MCU. I'm not sure if it was this one or The Avengers, but in one of those movies where you see a lot of the inside of a fighter jet, my dad has always joked that the planes, the inside, the specs are incorrect because Marvel requested the IP to do it right for the movies and my dad's company said no. So he's always very proud that they said no and that the specs (laughs) look wrong even though he loves the movies but he's always like oh there's technical issues there and it's like yeah that's your fault
0: (laughs) yeah it's like it must be a sort of a double-edged sword when you have that tight a connection where's the line between being a fan and having so much inside baseball information that no that's not right that's that's inaccurate you know you start nitpicking it's stuff because you know it's false
1: yeah i imagine that's how people like astronauts watch the martian and all those other outer space movies they're like that would never happen that doesn't work this doesn't work and it's like it's just tough just watch the movie. My other favorite thing about that scene is the phone calls between Tony and Roadie? Um, in particular, oh yeah when Tony finally admits that it is him, he's like, It's me, and Roadie's like, yeah, I know it too. And he's like, No, no, it's me. I'm in the suit. It's a suit and it's me. me. I'm in the suit. <laughs> he's hanging on the underside of this F-22. <laughs> it's so funny. I love that Roadie's like, what am I supposed to tell them? And he's like, Well, isn't like training accident standard protocol? And he's like, I can't say that, and then it cuts immediately to this was a training accident. <laughs> and it looks like he might even be in the Rose Garden, maybe, at the White House, giving this address to the press.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's getting that very can deliver. Oh, a training accident occurred is 1,300 hours. On. Yeah, it's a very... A Terrence Howard does have the military media relations thing down. So at that point, Tony reveals to Rhodey and to Pepper that he's Iron Man. And then Obadiah visits Raza and the Ten Rings. We find out that he is the one who actually hired the Ten Rings to kill Tony so he can take over the company and that he's been selling all arms to criminals and terrorists around the world. Obadiah then subdues Raza and has the rest of his group executed. Tony, realizing what's going on, sends Pepper to hack into Stark Industries databases to gain info on the weapons trafficking and it's there that she discovers the connection between Obadiah and the Ten Rings. On her way out of the office, Obadiah realizes what she's done as soon as she leaves. Fortunately for Pepper, she runs into Coulson on her way out. Obadiah pays Tony a visit and subdues him with the same little sonic thingy that he used to subdue Raza and he removes the arc reactor from Tony's chest.
1: There's a lot about this sort of set of scenes that I really like and since I have ranked this movie higher I will sort of take over and talk about this because I do think all this is really great.
0: I defer to you Emily.
1: (laughs) I think that whole scene with Pepper at the office where she sort of you know she tried to stand her ground incorrectly I would say Against Tony being like, you're going to kill yourself, but decides against walking out because walking out would get him killed too, so you might as well try and help. Uh, but that whole bit with her in the office in Obadiah, like, I know Jeff Bridges from a couple of sort of normal, more pedestrian movies where he's not that intimidating. But Obadiah, in this scene and in a lot of other scenes sort of as the movie progresses, he is so intimidating and for her to be as relaxed as she was, I think really showed a lot of growth as a character. For her to be able to be all sneaky and hide the USB and take it away with the newspaper and everything and to, like, obviously he figures it out very quickly, but for her to be able to go from, I am not going to be a part of this at all, I don't want to do this, things should go back to the way they were before because that was easier, she becomes much more capable and I loved that whole scene in the office and then again, probably my second favorite sort of combination of scenes is when Obadiah uses that sonic device on Tony. You know, he's not expecting it at all. And we've been talking. That thing is, that
0: thing is creepy.
1: It's so creepy. Right. I've heard those long range acoustic devices, and like those are awful, but to have one that fits in your pocket, that's so dystopian in an otherwise not dystopian movie at that point. You
0: just walk in anywhere and no one knows you've got it.
1: Right. You can't even really see the earplugs that he's got in until he takes them out. Both times, like when he uses it on Raza and when he uses it on Tony. You know, we've been talking a lot about sounds, you know, the sound of fighter jets and the sound of Tony's repulsors. And Bucky's arm has these really great sounds. But the sound that Sonic device gives off, whenever I hear it, I know that it can't hurt me because it's in a movie. But the little bass part of my brain is like, terrified every time that someone's just gonna come up behind me and just and And immobilize you you. yeah (laughs) and I love like Tony's sort of done all the work but Rhodey shows up as sort of like moral support right at the end and as Tony flies out he looks over at the sort of practice Iron Man and he's like next time baby
0: yeah (laughs) a little nod to future of War Machine I guess well, somehow Tony manages to crawl his way to his lab and install the old ARC reactor that Pepper had boxed up for him as a gift. He suits up in the Iron Man armor and flies off to confront Obadiah and make sure that Pepper's safe. Obadiah uses the reactor he stole from Tony to power his own new suit of armor, the Iron Monger. Pepper leads Coulson and a group of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents to arrest Obadiah. Obadiah chases after Pepper after making short work of the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. And then Tony shows up, one of our first big, what do they call it in the video games... Boss fights,
1: boss battle, yeah.
0: A boss battle, the first big boss battle in the MCU, and Tony instructs Pepper on how to overload the big arc reactor that powers the factory, and at very great risk to himself. It blows the roof off to the factory and gets rid of Obadiah for us.
1: I will say, I think this movie is a good, not timeless movie, but I don't feel like I'm watching a 12-year-old movie when I watch this movie, except the scene where Tony's still on the roof and he's like, press the button. And Pepper's like, no, but you told me not to. And he goes, yeah, well, you got to do it. And he's like, oh, but you'll die. And it's so old, like out... Outdated and sort mm-hmm. of campy. Yeah, but that's one of the few times that I'm like, oh, well, this is an older movie. Yes.
0: On the more technical side, you also did you make no reference in our show notes to that weird looking phone that Tony pulls out in Afghanistan, that weird LG thing.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: That looks like that looks like a tricorder from Star Trek.
1: Well, it's it is just one of those sort of late stage. Flip phones, just an LG flip phone, because Tony's sort of always on the forefront of technology in all these movies. For it to be 2008 and for him to not have at least, like, an iPhone prototype is always really jarring to me every time I watch this, because iPhones were out.
0: <laughs> They'd been out for about a year. Of course, you got to keep in mind they filmed this probably right around the time the iPhone was actually coming out.
1: I guess, yeah. It just always makes me laugh. I always forget about that part until I see it. I see him flip it open, and I'm just like, oh yes, the olden days.
0: It's kind of like that scene in Infinity War when Tony pulls out Steve's flip phone, and he kind of kind of looks at it and makes that little derisive chuckle.
1: <laughs> right. And
0: f- phone. And he flips it open before he doesn't dial it. I agree with you overall, for the most part. Aside from little things like that, I don't think this movie feels dated at all. It doesn't feel like 12 year old
1: movie another thing from the fight scene that i just thought was funny that i'd never noticed before the beginning of the fight when they're on the highway there's a bus that stops and all those people run out and on the side of the bus there's a big ad that says hydrogen powered embrace the future and i looked it up because i don't know anything about science there was this sort of pseudo science: how does tony's arc reactor work and it says essentially a fusion reactor that harnesses energy by removing electrons from hydrogen atoms. So I thought that was funny that there's a little nod to Tony Science on the side of a bus.
0: I hadn't noticed that. You're very observant. I never would have picked that out.
1: I was talking about this movie to someone else earlier the scientists on Quentin Beck's team from Far From Home, yeah. which is yes. very far in the future for us, but mm-hmm. when Obadiah yells at William, I think his name is William, I know that I've already said that like Obadiah staying as a character is very intimidating, but I think if I got yelled at like that while I was at work, I think I would just cry.
0: Oh, that whole, Tony Stark built this in a cave! Yeah, it's a real resonant kind of like, you know, holy crap. Yes. <laughs> He's big mad and- now. He's big man, and he's you know he's already intimidating enough. I mean, look when they illustrate to the people watching Spider-Man: Far From Home that that's who this guy is. Which clip do they pull out? They pull out the clip of Obadiah mm-hmm. growling at him next to the arc reactor. And then, of course, the movie wraps up at the press conference the following day when Tony makes his declaration to the world, I am Iron Man, a phrase that we will hear a few more times in the, in the canon of the MCU, including some very, very poignant moments. And, of course, we get our post credit scene where S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nick Fury visits Tony at his home and tells him that Iron Man is not the only superhero in the world. To be continued. So that's the movie in a nutshell, and I guess this is the part we talk about characters and actors. Starting with Tony. I mean, I'd known for 20 years prior to the release of this movie what a phenomenal actor Robert Downey Jr. was. I first saw him in Less Than Zero, Air America, Pretty in Pink. He got that Oscar nod for the title role of Chaplin in 1992. And a lot of people don't remember this, but he was a member of the cast of Saturday Night Live during the 85-86 season. You can go look that up on YouTube. He was a brilliant actor from the get-go, but as a lot of people know, he had a lot of demons as well. His substance abuse and legal problems were very well documented in the 90s and the early aughts when he was cast in Iron Man Marvel had him on a very tight leash he got paid half a million dollars for it compared to a lot of Hollywood salaries these days that's chump change and his contract was laden in the- all sorts of escape clauses in case he got out of line during production, but he adhered to every single one of those clauses. We talk about how Iron Man is the beginning of Tony Stark's redemption. It was a huge part of Downey's career and personal redemption. This film resurrected his career. He's easily one of the most bankable stars in the world. As for his performance, I mean, you see the complete transformation of Tony Stark. He starts out as the egotistical jerk, and then he's the prisoner who's clearly scared out of his mind, and then we see him as a changed man who so profoundly altered by his experiences that for the first time in his life it's like that life has real purpose RDJ makes that transformation very believable and that's you know one of the best parts of the movie you start off with that quote at the beginning about that's how dad did it that's how we did it And that's worked out pretty well so far. But then when he's working on the armor, he's like, there's the next mission and nothing else. And it's like he's turned into Batman or something. He's gone from this, you know, playboy to like a hardcore vigilante overnight.
1: We've sort of talked about some of the stuff that I like about Tony sort of in the context of the movie. But Tony was also one of the first times that I saw a good representation of PTSD and of trauma in sort of popular media you don't normally expect a superhero movie to talk about mental health issues and stuff like that and it is hard to do it accurately and to do it well and i think over the arc of tony's character development through this movie and through the rest of the mcu there's a lot of depth to his suffering and to his struggles and to what he's been through the other characters even acknowledge that they acknowledge that he's been through some stuff but push him to go past that and to be better for it i always really appreciated that i think even in the which is the movie where he ends up in tennessee
0: iron man three
1: yeah so in that one where he sort of has a little bit of a panic attack and i think someone tells him like yeah you're having a panic attack and he's like oh that's what this is.
0: <laughs> yeah, he has quite a few big panic attacks in that movie. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, not just in this movie, but you see him in Iron Man three. He's dealing with post traumatic stress disorder stemming from his After experience going into, space. Event- going into space and nearly having to sacrifice his life to save the world. In Iron Man two, he's confronting his mortality. We get to see Tony run the gambit of stuff in these movies. Jensen, we gotta talk about Jensen, because even though he's not in the film a lot, he's so pivotal. Sean Tube is Jensen. We talked about this during our Captain America the First Avenger episode, talking about the similarity between him and Dr. Erskine, that pivotal mentor helper who gives the hero the push that he needs to actually become the hero, both metaphorically and physically before dying. Jensen tells Tony. Don't waste your life. That's like his dying words to him, in the same manner that Erskine implored Steve to be a good man.
1: And Dr. Lawson with Captain Marvel.
0: And Dr. Lawson from Captain Marvel. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You're welcome. Just had to come in with the assist there. Yeah, I feel like probably everyone's gonna have a character like that. All of the heroes that have gotten an origin story are all gonna have someone like that in their life.
0: We should track that as we go through the movies.
1: Yeah, because I feel like there tends to be a sort of like fake mentor. You know, Obadiah is Tony's kind of fake mentor. For Carol, it's yon For Steve, even though I like him, it is Colonel Phillips. Kind of. So I feel like everybody does have a sort of false mentor. And then their real mentor is someone who's not in the film for very long who you don't see very much of but is so instrumental to the shift of the movie to create that sort of catalyst for having an origin story.
0: I can think of it one future Marvel movie that doesn't quite fit that, but that one's a lot further down the line. But I like the idea, and clearly that's been happening so far in all the movies.
1: Also, one of my favorite quotes, when Jensen is translating for Raza's second-in-command, he says for you to start work immediately, and when you're done, he'll set you free. No, we won't. No, we won't.
0: One of the things I really like about the Jensen character, and this is one of the things that I think, think differentiates him from erskine is that from the get-go jensen knows he's going to die
1: Well, and according to him, he's already dead.
0: Yeah, it's like he's already died. It's just waiting for it to actually happen. His family's gone. He knows he'll be next as soon as Raza gets what he wants. And there's just something so beautiful and sad about that all at the same time.
1: And it is Jensen's hometown, right? That Tony's Mm -hmm. weapons get sent to.
0: But the town also gets saved by Tony later on in the movie. So it kind of strikes me as his small way of repaying Jensen back for his help earlier. So we talked a little bit about Obadiah before. Let's come back to that. Jeff Bridges, who is, I guess, even back in the first MCU movie, they were getting veteran actors who'd been around for a while. Jeff Bridges, certainly no exception. I mean, I like Jeff Bridges in a lot of things. I've liked him for his entire career. And this movie, he rocks as as Obadiah Stane.
1: One of my favorite movies that Jeff Bridges is in is Stick It, which is a gymnastics movie. He's the coach of a girls' gymnastics team. Stick It came out in 2006, and Iron Man came out in 2008, and the different just the vast chasm between who he plays in Stick It and who he plays as Obadiah could not be any wider. It's like the Mariana Trench of acting. He is so different. He doesn't even look as tall as he looks as Obadiah, like as threatening or as imposing. He looks just like a regular sports coach for a high school kids, you know? He doesn't look anything like it and he doesn't even give off a similar vibe. Obadiah as a character, we've talked a lot about the fear that he creates in other people. And then he's sort of a really interesting character because he can give off that caring vibe, but in the same way as with Yon-Rogg and Captain Marvel. We just put that one out yesterday for the timeline's sake. And I do find Obadiah's encouragement of Tony more believable than I found Yon-Rogg's. I think that the knife in the back and the switch of going from mentor to being the villain is a lot more believable. And I think the growth and the arc of his character is a lot more believable so I really 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 like how they wrote him I don't know how he is in the comics but I really like how he was done in the movies
0: I like it because it's funny because on the one hand it feels to me like Obadiah's turn comes out of nowhere but at the same time that's almost why it works because you're not really expecting it and it is contrast to yon and Captain Marvel maybe this is we talked about Jude Law and our impressions of Jude Law in that episode maybe it's just him yeah maybe and he just kind, just kind of gives briefy. off he just gives off that, yeah, kind of, yeah, what's really going on vibe. He just kind of reeks of, what's the setup? Is he really like this? Jeff Bridges is Jeff Bridges is Jeff Bridges. He's just kind of warm and amiable. And he's got the, like you had talked about in your show notes, you know, the starch collars and all that stuff. And before you know it, over the course of the film, you're seeing the layers of the onion get pulled back. And you see him morphing into this deliciously crazed psychopath, yelling at Stark employees. And then he puts on the Iron Monger suit. And it's almost like the suit makes him go even crazier if you notice once he puts that thing on he's
1: he's bonkers yeah
0: the voice changer thing kind of helps but he goes all darth vader on us it's still pretty ominous let's talk about pepper you want to talk about pepper emily yeah
1: i'll start it kind of blows my mind i'm gonna try and be nice but how odd (laughs) and how air quotes hollywood gwyneth paltrow is but yet she can pull off playing Pepper with sort of none of that weirdness. I have seen her in other things, of course. One of my other favorite shows that she's in is A Politician on Netflix, which I do feel she is probably just being herself. If you've ever watched The Politician, I think you'll know exactly what I'm saying. That I think she is being 100% Gwyneth Paltrow and just being filmed as her, sometimes in The Politician, it feels like, even though it's a fictional show. It has always impressed me. I guess it's just a testament to how good the actor she is that it doesn't feel like I'm watching Gwyneth Paltrow sort of float through life with her weird lifestyle goop stuff. <laughs> it feels like she is being Pepper and she's the assistant to the CEO of the most powerful weapons manufacturing company in the world and she seems totally in the character and my favorite scene I know we talked about with Coulson when he's waiting at Stark Industries and he's like oh we had an appointment and she's like yeah we did we're gonna have it right now and he's like what right now and she's yeah. like yep right now let's go. Right now." And that scene where she's trying to find section 16 or whatever it is and she's got this trail of agents behind her and and she takes out her ID and she very intentionally scans it and it doesn't work and she very intentionally scans it again and it doesn't work and everyone's sort of waiting patiently in the middle of this chaos and then Coulson just comes up with the little explosive device and she goes oh are you gonna pick the lock and he's like nope turn around (laughs) that physical humor that sort of slapstick joke humor in that whole scene is some of my favorite parts of the movie. Because
0: you get that great contrast between Pepper, who's clearly is not used to putting her life at risk. So needless to say, she's kind of panicky and so forth about everything going on. Meanwhile, you've got all these trained S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. They got their shades on and the G-Men suits, and they put the explosives on the door, and then they just kind of turn around very nonchalant while it blows, Mm. compared to Pepper, who's like covering up her ears.
1: This movie is all about Tony. We really only get to see dimension from, in terms of female characters, from just Pepper. I do really like The Reporter. Miss Brown, who sort mm-hmm. of comes in and out of the movie. I think she's a great addition to the movie that pushes the narrative from an outside perspective. And I really like her. But of course, because this is a movie about Tony, and especially because it's a movie about early Tony, we're sort of unable to get more depth in characters. And I think because we see a lot of growth in Pepper in the later Iron Man movies. Oh, yeah. But we sort of only see her growth in juxtaposition to Tony's growth mm-hmm. for this well, one.
0: And yeah, I mean, that's, you could say that about
1: <laughs> every movie ever. <laughs> you, you can say
0: that about like so many movies unfortunately to your point about pepper's growth tony's not the only one who's learning how to be a superhero if you look at pepper she's if not necessarily learning how to be a superhero she's learning how to be in that as Rhodey says later on that superhero lifestyle Rhodey himself to a much lesser extent he's kind of getting used to this sort of superheroic kind of thing and he's covering for tony and making stuff happen behind the scenes mm-hmm So it's Tony and his supporting cast are all learning to do this. For all of the, how shall I say, negative associations that a lot of people have with Gwyneth Paltrow, it's really hard for me to even think of anyone else playing that role now. She's smart and decisive when she needs to be, and she plays awkward and quirky when she needs to, and I can't ask for any more from her in this role. She does it really, really well, and like we said before, her chemistry with Downey is is flawless. We gotta talk about Rhodey, played in this movie by Terrence Howard.
1: Yeah, I know we have Don Cheadle playing Rhodey now, but I really liked this Rhodey. For a long time, I was pretty upset that we had a new Rhodey. I feel like the chemistry between Terrence Howard and RDJ was so good. I always think about the whole scene where they're on his plane going to Afghanistan and the whole... (laughs) The whole thing is just hilarious and very clearly friendly and they understand each other and they're comfortable around each other. And I do kind of wish that, I know we don't often get backstory information on any of the characters besides like what little bits you can glean from a few flashbacks, but I wish that we knew more about their relationship and how they came together as friends that would have been really nice to have clearly throughout the whole MCU is such a vital relationship for him like it's Mm -hmm. almost as important to him as Pepper yeah Rhodey's very important to him and so it would be interesting to see why
0: yeah for the longest time I actually prefer Terrence Howard's Rhodey over Don Sheedle's I find him very believable that he's this Air Force Colonel who takes his job seriously but it's like you can also believe that he's Tony's good friend you point to the scene on the plane he starts off with, no I'm not drinking any sake and then flash forward immediately Immediately, exactly. and there are three sheets to the wind on the couch. The girls and the dancing pole pop up, and it's, you know, it gets very bro-y at that point. But it's believable. It's a believable friendship. I always thought that Don Cheadle's, his first couple outings as Rhodey, I just thought he was really kind of stiff and uncomfortable up until maybe Age of Ultron. And I know he didn't have a whole lot of time, from what I read, to accept the role. It was one of those take it now or lose it forever kind of things. The ink on the contract, I think, was still wet when they started shooting Iron Man 2. But he eventually grows into that role, but but initially, I had missed Terrence Howard's Rhodey for a long time.
1: Well, and even between that really bro-y scene on the plane and when he rescues Tony, how desperate Rhodey was to find him that whole time and how relieved he was to see him out there and to see him alive, there's something there. And I would like to know about that friendship because, as I've said, I love friends. I like Carol and Maria. I like Stephen Bucky. I like all that. I want to know everything. I want to know the entire backstory. Like I want to know you guys when you were little kids. I want to know you when you were in college and in high school and all this other stuff. I want to know (laughs) everything. I want the most like banal information about everybody in these movies. I want like a nice domestic all the Avengers move into the Avengers Tower and we get to see them just living their daily lives. TV show. That's what I want.
0: Avengers the sitcom.
1: Yes. That's what I want. I wish that would happen. I know it's not going to but I wish it would. Marvel. Please. You could pay me like $10 an hour and a can of Coke and I'll do it for you.
0: I guess we could talk about phil colson for a little bit i mean this is for all of us this was our first exposure to him
1: so captain marvel happened in 95 this one's in 2008 so that's 13 years even though it's been 13 years he still feels super young to me in this movie and not even until maybe iron man 2 when he becomes more of a plot point and that sort of crossover with thor it almost feels like maybe shield keeps him like locked away in a room and then brings him out and so his only chance to socialize is to bother people about debriefs. And so he comes out and he's like, we have to debrief. And he has this really sort of robotic, this is my job and I'm going to do my job. And he has a little bit of that even in the Avengers movie, but he does slowly over time become more of a full character. But even in this movie, he's still very much, this is my job. I'm going to do my job and I'm going to not cause any problems at all. I'm just going to do my job.
0: Yeah. Agent Coulson, Tony's line in Avengers. I thought his first name was Agent. When I first saw Iron Man, I couldn't quite figure out what what Coulson's deal was aside from being the typical G-Man in a black suit. Why is he even in this movie? But knowing what we know now about the role that Colson plays in the MCU, it makes a lot more sense now. Given the sort of plans that they had for him in the future, it makes sense that his introductory role be kind of small. They don't want to overuse him up front because clearly they have bigger things planned for him. I want to give a shout out to Farhan here who plays Raza. His role is pretty small here, but I've enjoyed his work in TV and film over the years. He's been on 24 The West Wing, Grey's Anatomy, Supernatural. I think he was in multiple episodes of Criminal Minds, in fact. I know you're a big fan of that show.
1: Yeah, he Um, uh, played a cult member, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Well, you know, for him, I guess that's an improvement seeing how, regrettably, you know, a lot of his roles are terrorists. But Star Trek fans, such as myself, will remember him as the ill-fated captain of the USS Kelvin in the opening act of J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek movie, a Marvel connection. At that time, you may remember his first officer, George Kirk, Jim Kirk's dad, was none other than Chris Hemsworth. My little shout out to Ferranti here. I like him a lot. Just occurred to me we haven't talked about Jarvis this whole time.
1: I know, you didn't leave anything in the show notes about Jarvis. It was just my one little note that says I prefer Jarvis to all the other AIs that Tony has ever built, and I will stand by that. I will die on that hill.
0: I think you're right. I understand the necessity of Friday and Karen, but Jarvis is the original. He's the OG AI.
1: I do like Karen. If I were to rank them, it would be Jarvis, Karen, Friday.
0: So now we're ranking AI Yes.
1: But I love that Jarvis, of course, is an AI and therefore doesn't have feelings, but adds a very nice comedic level. I don't know where I put this in the show notes. I may have thought that I wrote it and didn't write it, but the part where after Tony has done the sort of first flight and he gets all iced up with his suit, they're talking about how to fix the icing problem. And Jarvis makes a joke about, oh, well, if you ever want to visit any other planets, I guess we should revisit the exoskeletons. And it's like, well, what does Tony do immediately? <laughs> immediately goes into outer space a couple of different times ends up on titan it's like well lucky that you guys thought about that isn't it i bet jarvis would be sort of laughing in his ai grave at that point yeah i was right
0: paul bettany just pulls off that british butler kind of thing so well he's just really good at it and jarvis he was a character even before age of ultron he's such a ubiquitous presence in the first two iron man movies well the third one too and avengers i'm glad you saw fit to correct my oversight in i think the fans
1: up. would have been For very simple. upset if we didn't at least mention jarvis
0: So, miscellaneous stuff. The Ten Rings, who we will see again, sort of, in Iron Man 3, they are going to be a big part of one of the upcoming Marvel movies, most notably Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. That's real subtle. Supposedly we'll be seeing more of them later on. That would be really cool. We always talk about music right around this time.
1: Iron Man in particular is an interesting one to talk about because we have been going sort of out of order in terms of how movies came out. And I remember... Maybe around 2010 or 2011, a YouTube video came out where someone was sort of bragging on the MCU for not having identifiable theme song. Like Star Wars has mm-hmm. it, you sort of yeah. know what that sound is. Harry Potter has it, you know what that sound is. But if you ask people like, what do the Avengers sound like? Or what does Marvel sound like? You had no idea. And of course that's different now. Everybody knows the Avengers theme, but because this was one of the first movies to get made in the cinematic universe, there isn't much cohesion in terms of what happens in the music, except for the follow-through of Tony's music, like the music that Tony would be listening
0: to. ACDC has become ubiquitous with Tony Stark playing Back in Black at the beginning of this movie. We hear Back in Black later on, very infamously and comedically in Spider-Man Far From Home. In terms of orchestral scores, the Iron Man films are actually probably my least favorite, mainly because each one had a different composer, so there was never really an Iron Man theme, per se, until maybe... Brian Tyler's score for Iron Man 3. I like that one quite a bit. I mean, I like Ramin Jawadi's TV work. Prison Break and Person of Interest are like two of my favorite TV scores that he did. But I think his score for this movie is I just think it's pretty bland. There's no unifying themes. I mean, you do get Tom Morello on guitar, which is pretty awesome, but to me, that's just not really enough, which is one of the reasons why I think they ended up leaning in so heavily in Iron Man 2 on ACDC. I mean, there's an entire soundtrack, it's basically an ACDC greatest hits collection. A very good one, but that score by, I think it was John Debney, gets kind of drowned out too. But it's cool to hear the ACDC, and then of course you get to hear a rendition of Black Sabbath's Iron Man during the closing credits. That's which is... my
1: favorite part musically of the whole movie. I love the lead-in to it. It's so good. I also really like Black Sabbath, so. I don't think I could recall any of the orchestral music from the movie itself, from this movie in particular, because the most iconic audio parts of this whole movie, like in terms of music, is... The Iron Man Black Sabbath at the end. Mm -hmm. And then I can never get over that whiny emo not even music that Tony is listening to in the shop after his one night stand with a reporter I'm not even sure what it is I couldn't even tell you I've never listened to the song but there's the yeah I just hate my life and my life sucks so much and it's like Tony excuse me who are you (laughs) why are you listening to that you're a grown man first of all second of all you're the richest guy in the world (laughs) like what's wrong with you but sometimes you just gotta listen to whiny emo music I guess and sit in your lab and sulk about whatever it is is you're gonna sulk about that day, whatever's on the calendar.
0: I guess that's it. Finally. We made it.
1: All the glitches. (laughs) Technical
0: glitches and all.
1: It has been very glitchy today.
0: That's it for Iron Man. Did you have anything else to add, Emily?
1: No. I think we covered everything. I really like this movie. I just finished it maybe 30 minutes before we started recording, and I could probably watch it again tomorrow.
0: (laughs) Newsflash, everyone. Emily really likes Iron Man.
1: Emily really likes Iron Man. He was wrong in Civil War, but I really like him.
0: (laughs) We will be back in about three weeks with The Incredible Hulk, which will be kind of an interesting review because i haven't seen that movie in a very long time emily have you seen it at all
1: i may have it's possible i promise
0: i promise the listeners we will watch the movie before we start reviewing
1: (laughs) it'll just be 30 minutes of us being like did you watch the movie did i watch the movie i don't know what happened where did he go who played it
0: so we'll have that coming up for you in a few weeks thanks for listening everybody until then have yourselves a good night see you later For consideration for title of this episode, we have to use, what did you just say? What? And a can of Coke?
1: $10 and a can of Coke. How much
0: would you, okay, we it $10 and a can of Coke? Marvel, <laughs> if you're
1: listening, I have the Coke already. Just give me the $10 and I'll make the Marvel sitcom for you, I promise. <laughs>